It's been a wild rancher, but the Canucks finally got a victory as we do our latest podcast here on Tuesday after a 2-1 2-1 win, the Canucks knock off the Montreal Canadiens. If this was a football game, we would call this the Dysfunction Bowl. One Canadian team gets rid of a lot of upper management, and one Canadian team just kind of sitting there waiting. We'll see which one has the better results. But the Canucks finally win. Elias Pettersson finally scores all his right in the world, Rancer. The Habs won off the ice this weekend. The Canucks won on the ice on Monday. The Dysfunction Bowl, the Crypto.com Dysfunction Bowl. <laughs> I don't know. We got to give it a sponsor, right? We got to give it a sponsor. We could we could sponsor it after the Jays and Mariners because the Mariners just got better, buddy. Reyes goes to the goes to the M's. I know that we can't get into that because we've already had our bets. But uh, let's stick to hockey because I know everybody's <laughs> expecting us to dive into baseball. Everyone's expecting us because you trolled. You accused me earlier of trolling Blue Jay fans and you've trolled Mariner fans today. So I had to just bring that up quickly. But look, let's talk hockey because the Canucks haven't had a lot to smile about. And I don't know that anything is going to change what is inevitable, right? But uh, let's let's start with the game and then we'll get into the pic- big picture stuff because when you look at the, the last three games on this trip, the Canucks have done some good things. We're not here to talk about moral victories, but no. against Columbus in the first two periods, against Boston uh, for the first two periods of that game, and now here against Montreal, and they finally get rewarded with a result with their first regulation win in over a month. So what do you make of their form and finally getting a result? Well, they have played well. Like They've played well five on five. They actually are getting better defensive results than they have any right to, considering this abysmal personnel on the back end. And, you know, I think about, like, for me, there's the moment that just tells you everything you need to know about the Canucks, right? And it's like, Oliver ekman Larson gets penalized, and it's a soft penalty on, uh, but Anton Bleed got hurt on the play, right? So, Anton Bleed gets hurt, it's an ekman Larson hit, tough hit, tough penalty for the Canucks, and the way that this team is built, right, when ekman Larson goes to the box... Who kills penalties on the left side? Nope. Like, they don't have a guy to do it. So you're talking about Pasternak, Bergeron, and Marchand, right? Just, like, absolute lights-out killers <laughs> in this league, right? And it's Kyle Burrows on the left side playing playing <laughs> on his offside in, like, his 15th NHL game ever. And guess what happens, Farhan? He gets walked. He gets walked by Brad Marchand. No shame in that. Everyone, like better players, have been walked by Brad Marchand in bigger moments. You know, Brad Marchand lives to destroy hopes and dreams. I don't have to tell our listeners that. But I mean, what are you going to do? You need another lefty penalty killer. They don't have one. Like that for me, that moment, that's the encapsulation of what's gone wrong for the Canucks. It's like they're fine five on five, but in key moments, they don't have the pieces they need. They do not have the pieces they need. And meanwhile, off the ice, away from the ice, the the team is going through a a series of evident systemic failures, right? Sort of being punctuated by the fact that they've got a general manager who is pretty clearly actively trying to replace the head coach, right? And, And isn't functioning in a discreet enough way to prevent that from being public, even as the club continues to have Travis Green run practices and run morning skates and coach games. And talk to the and, media. And talk to the media. And the only person talking to the media. 
And, you know, it's also becoming pretty clear that, you know, like, are the Canucks, are the candidates that Benning is landing on even, like, is he getting ownership to yes on Green's replacements? Like, that's an open question. So you've got a general manager with what appears to be limited autonomy trying to replace a head coach pretty actively with news leaking about various candidates on a relatively regular basis as Green continues to go about his job and the teams losing games despite playing decently and still putting in, for the most part, like a relatively honest, like other than that Pittsburgh game, I don't think the Canucks have had a bad effort on this road trip, like a game where you'd be like, oh boy, like what a disaster. They just don't have the pieces. And it's evident in all these small moments where they, you know, cost themselves, like find ways to lose because they suck. Because the team is as badly built as any all-in teams roster that I've ever seen. And it's just, it's just, it just sucks. Like, it just sucks to watch this team play. It sucks to watch these people go through this. And, and it's just like everyone, like, let me ask you this question, Farhan. Like, go look at the Tampa Bay Lightning, back-to-back Stanley Cup winners, right? And they've got four assistant general managers. <laughs> the Canucks have two, and one of whom, like the joke in the Vancouver market is, what do they do? <laughs> you know? Um, those, those assistant jams, like they've been there for eight years. Like there's this incredible amount of loyalty and stability that sort of underpins Tampa Bay Lightning hockey operations. Well, we've talked about this how, multiple times. How are they times. ever going to compete with that? How well, are they, they can, ever going right? to compete with that? Well, when you and you you've talked about professional organizations, you know, and what this team needs to aspire to be, and they're not that, right? In terms of their overall structure from top to bottom, it's not a professional organization when you compare it to the successful ones. It just isn't, right? And there's not really an understanding of what that should look like because the owner wants to occupy a certain role. The general manager is only equipped to kind of wrap his head around specific roles and silos and the ability to delegate. So we understand that this is not a professionally run organization by the standards of the top teams in the NHL, but you know, and there's so much. Well, macro then you're never to- going to be a top team in the NHL. Well, okay. So that's fine. So we, we understand that well, from then, a macro perspective, like- but let's, let's start. Let's just stay micro for a little bit. Okay, <laughs> let's just stay micro for it, a little bit. It, but it's connected, like Kyle. I, I know it is. I know it is. Like do you, last year, we used to, to laugh. Else. Last year, we used to we used to laugh every time Tyler Toffoli scored on the Vancouver Canucks. Right, like it was just it was comical, you know. And if if the rights holder wasn't so sensitive, they would probably rather than cut to a shot of who screwed up or cut to a shot of Travis Green every time Tyler Toffoli scored. They should have cut to a shot of Jim Benning. So today. Do you think that when Tucker Pullman made that garbage pass into Bo Horvat's skates that ultimately led to that goal at the end, do you think that that same level of cringe might have been applied to Benning again? Do you think he possibly gets what he's built here? Oh, I'm sure he does. I mean... Does he really? The I worst mean, all the numbers about- were there. You guys, you know, on, on the analytics side, carved that signing from the first minute. I and, was actually carving it before it was done because well, I there you go. had so, wind of their so interest. So when, when those <laughs> moments continue to happen, when those moments continue to happen on the heels of the last big defenseman he got from Winnipeg doing you know those types of things, like do you, do you get the sense oh. that he possibly has his head wrapped around the fact that I effed up? 
Well, in building so Demko this back stacks end. the pads. Demko stacks the pads. That great save late in Montreal on Monday night, right? W- name the two defensemen on the ice for that shift. Yeah, Pullman and Burroughs. No, Pullman and Myers. Pullman and Myers. Okay. <laughs> it's just like, oh my goodness. Like, how did you think that was going to end up? How do, you know, like, and, and yet everyone else had played. And like Travis Hamannick, I don't I don't even know where he is. Yeah, no, I know. You asked the question this morning whether or not he'd be back, and we expected him to be back for these final two games, and it hasn't happened. He's fallen down. He's fallen down the Ozzy Smith like miracle. You know that in the Simpsons where he like falls forever in the baseball episode. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know where he is again. You've got that episode. You've got Wiley Coyote and back to back shows. That's a lot to digest. But I like cartoons. Let's (laughs) let's stick with micro. And I ask this because is there anything because we saw the run of form now it would be easy to say that a bounce here and there but when the penalty kill continues to happen which is a reflection of how poorly the roster is constructed and those kinds of things continue to bite them you know it's not just a bounce here and there because there are specific points in time in the game where the failure or the 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 problem is just going to be too big to mask which they've been able to do at five on five so is there anything that can be done to slow the Travis firing train down. Because as you said, it's pretty clear the general manager has been actively looking for the head coach's replacement. So is there anything that could happen? Because if Demko makes one more save or if the right bounce happens, and and obviously I've said that that's not realistic, but, you know, shooting stars and and lunar eclipses, and if if it happens by chance and all of a sudden there's a run of three games or four games, is there anything that can be done to slow down the coach replacement train? I have no idea. I don't. It's like, not I don't good. Know the the VIPs, not. the VIPs come for you to put your stamp on it. I know. I, my stamp is. I don't know what this organization is thinking because the changes that need to happen seem pretty obvious, and the order in which they should happen seems crystal clear, and yet. You know, I like to think through problems and and how would I go about this? You know, I would probably start with an interim GM while conducting a search for a president of hockey operations who has significant business experience and educational credentials and the weight to manage up and the authority to rebuild what Canucks hockey operations looks like and the amount of resources that go into populating it. In terms of multiple general managers, uh, a very senior pro scout um, with a lot of weight, may- maybe an assistant general manager with a pro scouting portfolio, you know, a director of player personnel, a role that the club hasn't had in forever. Um, you know, you try and build a dynamic collaborative organization and then you figure it out from there, including the coach. Yeah, but uh, including like that, the GM. That's but, such like that's such pie in the sky thinking. Like, and let's not like no, 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 no. I know. Sorry, you're sorry. I'm going through my exercise of saying what this is. What it's obvious they should do. So for okay, so now, forget the now, presidential part because that won't happen. Now let's flip it. Now let's flip it. Right, because it's like that would be the smartest approach to this, right? But sometimes I find it helpful to think through what's the smartest approach to this, and being like, okay, well that's not going to happen. And then <laughs> yeah. I think, what's the worst approach to this? And that sort of tends to be more closely approximates like that more closely approximates how the Canucks will approach it. Right. Organizationally speaking. And so what do I think the silliest approach would be? I think it's it would be to replace the head coach with um, Bradshaw, who's interim at the moment, 
and try and leg it through this season while wasting the next four months before the deadline with a general manager who pretty clearly doesn't have full autonomy to shape this organization's future and then make a change in the offseason, right? Because then you're wasting all this time before the deadline and you're tolling a year on additional contracts and, you know, you, you just sort of live in stasis zone. Um, that would, for me, be the worst approach to take. And that's the one I think is most likely is like you wait for the next 5-1 loss and Green gets replaced by the guy who's already in house and the club just sort of continues to limp through this season with no set plan or ambition of doing any better ever. And and that's what I think is most likely. So there you go. I put my stamp on it. I've said what I think should happen. I said what I think will happen. And maybe, maybe the reality falls somewhere between those poles, but you know, those sort of seem like, you know, there's, there's what should happen. What I would be like, good. Hey, look, that's an organization that's beginning to take their fate as something of a punchline seriously and trying to change it versus, oh, that's so Canucks of them. Well, there's no doubt. And, and, you know, I say the the presidential piece is just such fiction, right? Because I, I don't think the owner really has his head wrapped around the fact that I'm the problem, right? Like he doesn't have his head wrapped around that fact. So he wants involvement. He wants a level of control. And I, I just don't see that changing anytime in the short term. And, and you're right. I mean, as far as for them to go out and get a credible, experienced head coach, they're going to have to commit to that person. And why would you allow Jim Benning to commit to that person? Right. So like the logical way to do this, if you want to shake things up and do it right now. And when I say logical, I, I say that with the caveat of they're not going to take a big picture approach with a president and a building of a full organization. It's just never going to get up that high again. It's going to be at what, you know, who can you get to be the GM and who can you get to be the coach? It's going to be that level of thinking. So, you know, they're, they're going to kick the tires on Claude Julien and Scotty Walker and whoever. And then in the end, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to get a guy like that. And they're going to say, okay, well, we'll give it to Brad. We'll make the change after the loss. And and yeah, and they'll probably let Jim kick the can down the road until the off season. And when they could potentially make the same change right now and say, okay, Ryan Johnson, you're going to be that guy. You know, like we, we think you can shepherd this to the end of the season, right? At, at the same level that the current GM could do. I don't even think you do. You give it to RJ to um, shepherd to the end of the season. It's like we're launching a full search for a president of hockey operations or a general manager, but it should be a president. And you're running the day to day for a couple months. If something comes up that's too good for us to say no to, a la sure. Tom Fitzgerald when he was the interim in New Jersey, sure. But you know, short of that, we're just like, let's go. Let's go make some moderate deals, not involving assets for a lefty who can kill penalties and a right-handed centerman. Let's at least do a credible job of icing like a, a roster that can win some games and let's, you know, go from there. Like that's, that's, you know, if you're going to go with the more deliberate approach, like that's the way to do it. But again, I don't think this organization is serious about winning. I don't think they're serious about winning. Like I, I just don't, I cannot square their behavior with being serious about competing in an NHL in which. You know, teams like Carolina, teams like Tampa Bay, teams like the Florida Panthers, teams like Colorado, teams like Vegas, uh, teams like Toronto are legitimate and genuine sharps at the table. Like are teams with a super sophisticated understanding of how to win in this league consistently. And, you know, this team's 
just doesn't have a chance the way they're currently constructed. There's no chance. You can blame systems. You can blame Travis Green. You can blame the performance of Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser, and you wouldn't be all the way wrong, but you're you're not addressing the the fundamental issue. You know what I'm saying? You're not you're not even picking at the fundamental issue, which is this team is not built to compete in a sophisticated contemporary NHL. Period. And until they are, I, I don't know what I don't know what to expect. Like you can't expect a plan to turn this around in two years without some ambition and some discipline and a plan. And that's it. That's end of story. That brief bit of levity brought to you by your Vancouver Canucks, who are just uh, not necessarily a lot to smile about, except they did wind up winning here on Monday night, 2-1 to one the final score. Elias Pettersson with an absolute PD classic, like a retro PD goal. It's gotten to that point because we don't see those anymore. It's what retro. a relief. It, what a well, relief for, from him, eh? What, what a reaction. Absolutely. And, you know, he, it, it was just, the shot that we've been waiting to see for so long, and when it doesn't happen, it leads you to think, oh, there's still something wrong. And we've kind of dismissed the notion that injury is a part of this, right? But he finally... Injury is let, not part of this. He finally let it rip. It finally went in. You could see, not just him, like the whole bench, everybody just got completely jacked up that because they know what's at stake. They know what's going on. They know how important this player is to the entire team's success. And everybody breathed a certain level of relief when he finally did it. This team needs Elias Pettersson to be the real Elias Pettersson, period. And he hasn't been. And he knows he hasn't been. And it's worn on him. You know, he's avoiding the internet. But don't make no mistake, like the the pressure, the criticism, the contract, it's all snowballing for him. And, And he hasn't been having a great time. Like he hasn't been having fun. And I spoke with him post game, mostly, mostly uh, without my recorder, just like trying to get a sense of where he's at. And, you know, he had fun tonight. He had fun tonight. He had fun playing the game and competing. He didn't play but a that's lot. That's because he scored early, right? I mean, if, if he doesn't score early, does he have fun? Does the pressure weigh on him? And is it just another meh PD game? But because Maybe. that goal came in the first, and Maybe. it wasn't just a goal. It was a PD goal. It was. I think, it was I think a beauty. That, that it wasn't like a hit the end boards and come back out and hit someone's ass and go in. Like it was a legit PD snipe job. Yeah, I, it was. It was a beautiful goal. And his reaction told the whole story, right? Just a relief, just a flood of relief. Like I can still do that. And I think he needed that. I think he just needs to have some success. I think it can snowball for him. But but right now, I don't think he's feeling instinctive in executing his game. You know, he ha- he's not finding, like, he sees it as finding the solution within the game and-, and doing so constantly. Like, that's the solution to this problem. That's the solution to this problem. He is, at the end of the day, like an artist whose medium is carbon fiber and graphite, right? Uh, a technician who excels at spatial problem solving. And right now, his instincts are off. He's not playing that free game. He's not having fun. He's not just going out there and and doing it, like just playing the game. And I think it's because of a lot of things. Like, I think I think there's no question that he was rusty after eight months off. I think he had a good summer. He worked hard. Like, I don't think it's a fitness thing. I just don't think he's there. I just don't think he's been there. And I think he's hyper aware of it. And I think it's snowballed into a complete lack of confidence and just a struggle day to day to go out there and enjoy 
outworking guys and playing his game and doing the simple things and letting it flow from there. Does he remember his game? And and I'm not trying to be negative towards him, but it feels at times watching him play like he's not even sure. Like you talk about not being instinctive and it feels like he doesn't even remember, no feel what that's supposed to look like. Well, I thought he played well tonight. I mean, he I did. thought he played well on Monday night, but you know, does he remember it? Of course, it's been his game his whole life. But I think he's, you know, very much aware of the fact that, you know, too often this season, that game has not been his. Like, he has not had that game going on a regular enough basis. Like, I think he, I mean, I know for sure that he knows where his game is at and that it's not acceptable and that he's not happy with it. Is he is he feeling it in the room from the room? Like you said, he's been off the internet, and you know we we collectively like it's it's noise, right? Like you know Canuck Twitter and all of it, it's noise. But at the end of the day, and I, I put this out on Twitter a while back, that forget what we say, forget what the me- the big bad media says, forget what Canucks Twitter says. Ultimately, in that room, he knows that those players can't succeed until he plays his game. Do you get the sense that he is feeling it from within? Not that anybody is like, you know, shit talking him and saying, Petey, what are you doing? Like, wake up. I'm not talking about it like that. But do you get the sense that that internally he he gets that part of it? So I'm, I'm going to spin this. I think he's I think it he is getting it from internally, but he's getting it from internally, like from himself. But, you know, also, I, I'm sure from. You know, the staff <laughs> And, and I mean, you know, players is the most important part, though. Is he feeling it from his teammates that he has to look across from in the locker room every day? Did he indicate that? I mean, to I'm you? sure he is. I'm sure he is. But but I don't know that he is. I think he's feeling it mostly from himself. I'm going to be honest with you. I think Pedersen's such a perfectionist in terms of his outlook. I think I think the hardest like, you know, <laughs> hell is other people's. Yeah, sure. But sometimes hell can just be being alone in your own thoughts and and working through your own struggles and knowing and being hyper aware of where you're at and knowing that you're not like that you're alien to yourself in terms of where your game's at. And that's where I think he's been for much of the past few weeks. I think it's been a real struggle because of what he expects from himself. And an interesting thing here. So. He was the low ice time man for the Canucks five on five in Boston on Monday night or sorry, on Sunday night, excuse me. And they fly to Montreal and on Monday morning at at Le Centre Bell. And this is extremely rare, extremely rare. The head coach steps on the ice. There is no morning skate or at least no formal morning skate, but number 40 on the ice. Four morning skate, coach's decision. Travis Green also on the ice. Um, and and Pedersen got skated on Monday, like skated hard, like 35 minutes hard skate, some shooting wow. work, a ton of skating work, meetings with the head coach himself, um, and then played tonight. And so this is really important because you'll see 11-10, five-on-five ice time for Pedersen on the game sheet, right? When you look, that's the fourth line ice time. Relative to his teammates, 13-13 in total. Pedersen had a 30-35 minute. He had a rinse skate and in between a set of back-to-back games and still played on Monday night. 
And I do think he was a little bit tired going into this game. But the session was designed like the, the way that he's being handled is designed to get the weight off his shoulders, to just give him something else to think about, to just get him on the ice, free skating, having fun, putting in some work so that he can be a little bit freer, a little bit relieved, maybe even a little bit tired so that he's not thinking so much when he's out there. Um, you know, this is extraordinarily rare. I mean, the story I just told you might just seem like whatever. You no, know, that but is, it's that's not. big. Like, that's significant. That never happens. That never happens that a guy who's playing both legs of a back-to-back gets skated hard uh, in, in a morning skate. But it, but that's that's the approach that Pedersen and, and the club took on Monday. And and look, at the end of the day, it worked. He had fun. He played well. Well, he, he drew two penalties. The second one was good. He was trying to carry it up ice and actually try to beat people instead of getting the puck off his stick. I asked him after the game, you know, how difficult was that for you to, to not get ice time? Um, and, and he actually, it was a weird answer almost when he, when he said, you know, I'm, I'm embracing it. Um, and, you know, and, and he kind of followed it up by saying that, you know, I'll, I'll just do the most with what I've got and that kind of thing. And I'm not sure what else you can say. I just found that one line weird that I'm embracing it. Cause you've, you've got to think on some levels, it's pissing him off. Well, it definitely pissed him off to not be on the ice six on five in Boston. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And tell you that much. Um, but I think, I think he just needs to get back to having fun. I think he's aware of that. And so I don't think he's like, you know, gung-ho about it by no means. But, you know, I think he's realistic about where his game's at. I think he's dissatisfied with where his game's at. And, you know, I think he's probably pretty open-minded to trying whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean... They, they took a very, very non-traditional approach with preparing him for Monday night's game, skating him hard in the morning before a second leg of a back-to-back and, you know, then limiting his ice time in part, you know, yes, it was a reflection of his performance, but also a reflection of the work that he put in. And, and Green alluded to it, right? Green alluded to it post. He said, you know, he's putting in some extra work on the ice and off the ice, right? Um, that was a loaded comment. It may have flown under the water, un- under the radar, but... That was a loaded comment. He, Petter, Pedersen got rinsed on Monday in addition to playing in the game. Where do you think Pedersen is at as far as the head coach is concerned? Because, you know, we, we've talked about the, the thought that even if Travis hasn't lost the room, there may be certain young players on this team that maybe are starting to slowly not buy in or not, you know, feel the same level of love or motivation or any of that kind of stuff as it relates to the head coach. Where do you think... Pedersen is in where where his thoughts are his mindset is as far as Travis Green is concerned well I think it's a good sign that they I mean not not only was Pedersen skated but it was Green that ran it sure yeah that's that's, rare too yeah that stands out so you know I think look I don't want to like go overboard and be like that's a great sign you know like I don't know like I don't know we'll see we'll see if he can build off it we'll see if this slowly works to get to Pedersen I think there's clearly like at some point, if this head coach can't unlock Pedersen and Besser, what are we doing here? Yeah, no question. You know, so I mean, it's like the long term fate of this rebuild. I mean, the season's lost, but the long term fate of this rebuild hinges on getting the most out of forty and forty and and six and and forty three. You know what I mean? Like and fifty three. And in particular forty though, right? Like forty is the straw that stirs this 
drink when things are good. Um, so, you know, I think it's a good sign, I guess, that they're still working together, that they're still trying things, that they're trying to figure it out and, and working together clearly on it. Um, you know, but there's a lot of ro- road to run. Like, I'm not going to go so far as to say Petey is back because he scored a beautiful goal and had a big reaction and because he played better in, you know, fourth line minutes, five on five on Monday night. Um, but, you know, hopefully it's a step. Hopefully this is the start of something that gets this team somewhere. Yeah. You know, and as, as I talk about Pedersen just and, having and fun, like just having fun, man, like, you know, at the end of the day, this season is lost. It is. They're not making the playoffs. They're not reeling off, you know, the 80 points they need over the remaining 59 games. You're so like, negative. No You're chance. so negative. No, there's no chance. I they're know. not, they're not rolling at a president's trophy contender's pace for three quarters of the season. They do not have the horses to do it, but it still matters to not suck. Like it still matters to play with some heart and with some effort and to put on a show for your fans when you're at home and to be a tough out when you're on the road and to play with some identity. Like that still matters. This team still needs to do that. And for this team's long-term prospects, they still need to rebuild or get Pedersen back to the level he's usually been at because next season they can't afford 20 games like this from him again. They can't afford 20 games from the team like this again. You know, like you, you can't play like this in this league. So, you know, it still matters. It still matters. Just because they're not making the playoffs doesn't mean that I'm not curious to see Pedersen, you know, not curious, not not waiting how important it would be for Pedersen to pull out of this, to play like himself, to be fun to watch again. Not just for my entertainment covering this team, but also because I think it matters in the big picture. This team needs to get 40 back on track. They need to empower him to be the player he can be. They need to maximize his potential. And if they're if they can't, if they can't, then none of this matters anyway. We can argue about the third pair guy all we want. We can argue about Kyle Burroughs not being out there on the PK because there's no other options all we want. It won't matter if they don't have great players. And Pedersen is a great player. He just hasn't had a great start. And getting him out of that, working through that, that's everything for this team. So as we dive back into the Canuck locker room and you talk about having fun. A couple of episodes ago, I, I kind of railed on a certain level of dysfunction in the locker room and just kind of how it was necessarily relating to Travis Green. And, you know, for me, I, I'm, you know, I, I chafe at the notion of, you know, young players getting to play with a lack of accountability and ultimately the head coach is made to pay the price. But beyond that, there's been some stories out there that Bo Horvat and JT Miller that they're, they've caused a divide in the locker room, that there's Team Horvat and Team Miller, and the locker room is messed up not because of how guys are responding to the head coach, but how people are responding to one another. Is there any truth to that at all? Because JT Miller seems to be chuckling at the notion. Well, he did to me, yeah. He certainly made light of it. Your thoughts, based on what else you've heard, is is he just deflecting, or is is there any there there? I don't think there's any there there, to be totally honest with you. Um you know, not not that it's like hunky dory in that locker room, but you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's as putridly negative as the results make it seem, to be totally honest with you. And and I certainly don't think the source of tension is is primarily Miller and Horvat. In fact, 
you know, the people I've talked to about it suggest that, you know, those guys are good friends, like really close. So, you know, have there been tense moments this season? I'm sure there have. I'm sure. But, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of there there based on what I'm hearing anyway. So where is the disconnect? I mean, is there some of that? This is a difficult situation for any team to go through. And, you know, we saw it last year to the point where there were certain players, Nate Schmidt among them, they just couldn't wait to get the hell out of here, right? And yeah, there were COVID circumstances and, you know, you couldn't necessarily no, enjoy the team the, yeah. and the city and all of that. Like, I get all of that. But this tests you. Watch the Seattle Seahawks last night. Absolutely blow it against Washington. And like their offense is just a shit show. And just watching this team play, you have to believe on some levels that, you know, the locker room is being tested, right? Because there's a team that's used to having success and now it's not. And in the case of the Canucks, they're not necessarily used to having success outside of that miracle bubble episode. Um, this this team has got to be looking at each other and saying, "Hey, what's going on? And why aren't you picking up your end of the, uh, you know, your, of the end of the slack? And why aren't you doing your part? Like, is do you sense that this start on the heels of so much offseason expectation, getting last year just out of sight, out of mind? Like, how much is that locker room being tested right now, and is it starting to come apart at the seams? I mean, I think there's a real disconnect between the organization and the locker room." In terms of communicating vision, I think there's a I think that the issues that impact the club that we discussed in the first segment at length, I think those impact the locker room. I do not think there is a winning environment around this club. I don't think there are winning players around this club. Um, I don't think there is enough leadership anywhere in the organization. And so, you know, I, I also don't know that I trust this management group to fix that. Like, I don't know that under Benning's leadership, they're ever going to be good enough at identifying character or identifying defensemen or identifying <laughs> the types of players that you win with to consistently pull out of this. So Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel don't count. No, they don't okay. like that's the wrong type of leadership. You know, if, if you're, if you're not able to tell on your own team that a guy like Tanev's someone you can't lose for cultural reasons. You know, if you're boxed into losing him because you've overvalued guys like Beagle and Roussel in terms of their leadership abilities, you know, I, I mean, if you have a prospect who, boy, he would mean an awful lot to this team, just have a lefty third pair guy who could kill penalties and Olio Levy. Like, if you don't know that player well enough in his fifth year in the organization to have a sense that he might not show up to camp in shape and you better have a backup plan, then, like, what do you, I mean, if you can't evaluate the character of the guys you employ, how are you ever going to win? How are you ever going to bring in the right people to win? You know, and, th and that's sort of what, bothers me a little bit about this team so much like when I think about it and try to be objective and try to be fair to everyone like one thing that really bothers me is it's not Tucker Pullman was obvious by the analytics but even by the old school stuff this team has failed like in terms of evaluating character this team has failed to construct a group you know that's that's the stuff that drives me nuts you know, not having a, a righty centerman right now who can kill penalties, not having a third pair lefty like those. That's the meat and potatoes stuff. That's the hockey man stuff. 
They're poorly built by that criteria, Farhan. This is not some newfangled analytics critique. It's like, what's failing this team is the old school stuff. They don't even have that right. That's, yeah, it's a great way to look at it. it. It drives me nuts. Like, honestly, it just drives me nuts. Because, um, you know, that's stuff that I don't trust myself to have as good a feel for. As, like, who's going to regress? Who helps you outshoot the opponent? You know what I mean? Who creates the environment where your team is more likely to get the next goal than your opponent? Like, that's the highfalutin analytics stuff that I know that I know. You know? The stuff I'm not as confident about is, like, the hockey man stuff. I can barely skate fucking backwards. You know? Like, that's not what I'm going to have a expert knowledge of. But even that stuff, this team's falling short. Drives me nuts. It drives me nuts to cover. Honestly, I'm like, I think this team has broken everyone's brains just a little bit. Like the stress of the pandemic, plus watching this team, plus eight years of sustained failure have just like broken everyone a little bit. And I think that's why you're seeing so many people acting out around this team. Like, you know, Anson Carter watches them once and is in like a big Twitter spat with the city. You know, it's just like, <laughs> it's like, it's like you don't even have to be around this team all the time for them to break your brain. And so I feel like we're all on edge just because I feel like, I feel like it's hard to see where this team and this organization are accurately just because it's so miserable. No, it is. But, I mean, listen, it, like there's been some amusing extensions to it. Like Sakaris and IMAC, that was hilarious. I mean, it was sad and hilarious, but it's just, I, I think there is a certain amount of everybody is just so frustrated covering and talking about, and you know, it's hard not to let the negativity creep in. Like, fortunately for me, I still have a lot of football to cover, right? So I'm not just completely immersed in this and I can find, you know, a certain level of entertainment on that side of it, right? But looking at this, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's painful, right? I mean, just hearing, like reading the media, because nobody wants to come out and say fire person X, because it's almost borderline unprofessional to be lobbying ownership to fire somebody, because that's not our job. So we instead talk around it and we instead like throw numbers out there to make it absolutely obvious what we collectively think, because we just can't say the words. And, you know, and that in itself causes a level of tension because, you know, you, you want to rail against somebody, you know, for me, like I've, I've been covering this thing since 1994, right? That was my first year in great time to start. You know, you wait a while and you get to 2011. And now for me, you know, I'm on the other side of it and I'm thinking, am I ever going to cover, forget a cup champion. Am I ever going to cover like a legitimate, meaningful cup run again? Yeah. I mean, teams fluke into cup runs all the time. You just don't win one by like you just don't get lucky and win one. But you can get to the you can get to the cup final. You can win three rounds. Yeah, you can, I guess like, Mo Montreal did it last year, but wow. yeah, you can catch fire and then get steamrolled in the Stanley Cup final by one of the teams that gets there that's actually well built. Sure. And if that's what you're aspiring to be, you know, a team that's 18th in point percentage like the Montreal Canadiens were in a, under a decade of Bergevin's uh, leadership, you know, they they. Look, they were 18th in point percentage, but hey, they were they were 10th in playoff games played or 11th in playoff games played because of that cup run. Like you can be that team. You can build a team that's, you know, meaty and underskilled and built for the playoffs and they struggle to make it, but when they do, oh boy, cuz that's really what the Bergevin Canadians were, right? Sure. Um I mean, you can build that team if you want. Uh, it's fine. It's just that's not how you that's not how you win a cup. Right. And it's like there's a hierarchy, like there's a hierarchy of things that need to be accomplished to win a cup. Right. 
And it starts with like, well, it starts with really basic stuff. But if we go top down, it's like, you know, cups are at the very, very top of the pyramid. And then further down from that is playoff series wins, like playoff wins, right? And and further down from that is actual wins. And <laughs> down from that is outscoring your opponent on a consistent basis. And down from that is, you know, players who win puck battles, right? And like, like you go all the way down and you get to the basics. And what are the basics? It's like defining how you want to play, being disciplined about identifying players at the pro and the amateur ranks who can do that, uh, fitting them in and managing the day-to-day of a 23-man roster in a cap system, allocating money intelligently in terms of your finite resources and, and cap space, um, you know, figuring out and being very strategic about when you put your chips in to, to give yourself a real chance to win, like all of that factors in. And that's sort of like the lower rungs. And, and eventually you get down and can distill, like, what does a good day look like? You know, for everyone in the organization, like what are the terms? What what terms are we using that we define and we agree on? You know, and if you don't do that, you get to like you get to situations where you're just throwing out comps like, oh, yeah, um, you know, Dmitry Zhukanov, he's a lot like Pavel Datsuk or Ole Olevi is a lot like Nick Lidstrom or Jason Dickinson. You know, we think for us, he's a 30, 35 point third line center who's going to help us on the penalty kill. You know, and it's like Dickinson's not that guy. He's like a decent utility defensive bottom six player, you know, but he's not a signature third line center for your club. You know, Pullman is not even an everyday NHL player. Hamannick, like, I don't even know where he is. <laughs> I don't even know where he is. Tanner Pearson, you know, I, I, I love me some Tanner Pearson. He competes hard as hell, goes yeah, to the not net. At, not at that money. Well, I mean... Without question, not at that money. I mean, look at the Leafs. For the amount that Tanner Pearson costs against the cap, the Leafs have Kasha and Camp, who are like their third line. And like one of the best third lines in hockey. Like other teams identify talent on the cheap every year. For the money that Tanner Pearson makes, the Carolina Hurricanes replace Dougie Hamilton with both D'Angelo to run their power play and Ethan Bear. Like a shutdown righty and a power play ace. And they replace one of the best defensemen in hockey at Tanner Pearson money. Again, you either have the organization set up to do this or you don't. And the Canucks don't. It's infuriating. Well, no question. And, and we're going to have plenty of episodes to discuss how infuriating it is. But before we go real quick, because I didn't start with the obvious. And that is the Habs made a decision with the Canucks there, like in town. Does well, the Habs just gotten there because it was back to back? So it happened on Saturday. The Canucks were in Boston. Does the Habs decision put any more pressure on the Canucks? Because, you know, the analysts, everybody's there. They're like, they did it. Are these guys finally ready to do it? Does it put any more pressure on the Canucks? Only public pressure, only external pressure. I think internally, they I don't care. think they have pressure on them. Internally, I think they're just doing their thing. They're telling everyone they're doing their thing. They're waiting for the right people. Meanwhile, meanwhile, current personnel just sit in this sort of purgatory awaiting a shoot a drop. I mean, it's deeply unfair. It's deeply unfair to everyone involved in this team directly as an employee, but also to anyone who's ever cared about this team. And I mean, look, uh, you know, I don't I, I just cover this team. I don't run this team, but I I, I know enough about this business and, and I follow enough 
about this business to know what I think is acceptable, like what I'm going to tell fans, like, hey, I think that's a good move. Hey, I think that that's worth supporting. Hey, I think, you know, this line of criticism is unfair. Like, that's what we do, right? And the way that this is playing out, like, I find it loathsome. How long before this ownership group gets into Eugene Melnick territory? I don't know. That's that's pretty special territory. And and you also have to be way more public than that they are. You know, like, Eugene Melnick also puts his foot in his mouth regularly. Fair enough. Like on radio or on broadcast or what have you, like they don't talk much, right? So, you know, I don't think they're at risk of getting into Eugene Melnick territory, but I think in terms of industry confidence and in their ability to chart a productive direction, I think they're, you know, are not, they're not there, but they're you know, the next rung up. They're not multiple rungs up. They're the next rung up. Well, the challenge in all of it is that if they make the decision to change the GM, they can't get quality people in to replace him. Like, there's going to be a big relief if that move gets made, right? Finally, that's going to be out there in the public sphere, right? I mean, we know what the market thinks about that, uh, about the current management situation, right? So, but all that said, if that decision happens... Because you talked at the start about trying to create a professional organization. And I don't think either one of us believes that's going to happen. Where there's a proper president in place and multiple, you know, assistant GMs and silos created like they did in Toronto and so on and so forth. Like none of us think that's going to happen. So who are you going to get to replace Jim in, in that moment? And as long as they take the approach of we're not going to make change until we have the solution, as opposed to talking about the scenario we've said that, okay, well, you know, if, if you, you know, put in a Brad Shaw or put in a, a Ryan Johnson to to kind of get this to the finish line while we're going through a search, right? They, they don't operate that way. So with that in mind, like, how do you get the right guy to, to take this on if and when a change, which appears to be inevitable, eventually happens? Well, I think they're going to have lots of candidates. Like, I think it's still a desirable job. For me, I'm not worried about the, like, can they land a quality person? It's can they set up a quality organization? For me, that's the question. Like, can they set up an organization that's properly and truly functional? And on that note, before we go, we do want to let you know that former NHLer Sean Thornton is Craig Custance and Sean Gentilly's guest Tuesday on the Athletic Hockey Show. Rob Pizzo from CBC Sports hosts the Wednesday Roundtable along with Sarah Sivian, Jesse Granger, and guest Julian McKenzie from the Athletic. Tom Fitzgerald, the general manager of the New Jersey Devils, is Michael Russo's guest this week on Straight from the Source at The Athletic. As for us, we want to thank you for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all that bonus content from the entire network. Start with a 30-day free trial and then just 99 cents a month after that. And right now, get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash the VanCast. Drancer, we didn't even talk about Brad Marchand getting suspended three games. You know, you know that VIPs want to revel in that, but hey, so much to chew on with this team and looking forward to doing it again later well, in the week. I want to note one thing about it really okay. quick. All right. So it's not called in real time. I right? know. The NHL suspends him for three games and there's no comment on it being a missed call. Like that play was worth three game suspension, but no comment on how it was called in game. How does that square? It's the NHL because that creates a level of accountability this league is simply not capable of offering. Mind-blowing, though.
right? Like, it it is, but it, it can't surprise you. It cannot possibly. It doesn't surprise me. Surprise but, me. but just because I'm used to it doesn't mean I'm not outraged. Fair enough. I've gone numb to the, to the NHL. Yeah, I've gone numb to the <laughs> NHL nonsense when it comes to that. Hey, are we back Wednesday or Friday? You're the boss. Let's figure it out. Let's smell how this week goes. I think if it's a big loss in Ottawa, we probably should uh, go and be prepared for an emergency episode. And if it's like a comfortable Canucks win, maybe we go on Friday. Maybe we go on a practice day. Um, you know, because we'll st- it still won't be a game day. The team has a couple days off after this road trip. So we'll figure it out. But uh, but a uh, good chat, man. Perfect. Looking forward to it. Travel safe, my friend. Mariners suck. 